Thank you, guys. It's uh, good to be here today. I was thinking while they were singing uh, how blessed you all are. They, uh, they don't have these kind of things at UNB or Mount A or Dal. And uh, so you guys are, are blessed to be able to participate in this this morning. Um, this message is an ode to my total inability to live the Christian life. And uh, I preach it this morning because I feel like maybe for, for two or three people in this place at least, uh, this truth will, will kind of intersect your spiritual journey at a time that you're most needy of it. And it'll be a defining moment for you. I really am believing for that this morning. It, uh, it came out of uh, a time up at Moncton Wesleyan a year or so ago when we were in the community Bible experience. And that's a particular version of the Bible that was put out recently. There's no, there's no chapter divisions or verses. And it regroups the order of the New Testament. And the cool thing about it is at the time, there were about 600 people uh, working through those scriptures all at the same time, and you read about 50 pages a week, and there was we had great buy-in from the congregation on that, and we were attempting to preach each Sunday, kind of off of off of what the people were reading during that week, and this message came out of. Uh, the week that we were in the midst of First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, and and Romans, and uh, so it was kind of a, an attempt to try to package those truths and uh, consolidate them so people could then move on in the Scripture the next week. And uh, you know, it's, I, I remember being at a Promise Keepers event years ago where there were forty thousand pastors singing together and praying together. It was like a roar when people prayed. There's something powerful about when people sing together. There's something incredible when you hear people praying together. But when you get a lot of people reading the word together, there really is a power in that that is very definable. You can sense it. And that's what we were in the midst of, in the midst of this, uh, this message. And so the title of this is threefold, two substitutions, two sins, and two solutions. And I want you to remember that because I want to try to give you a handle for your own journey on what God wants to do in your life to give you victory in your life. But more than that, if you're preparing for ministry, the truths that I'm going to speak about this morning are something you're going to be charged with trying to communicate to people who, uh, who, who just are newbies at the whole thing. They're struggling with their inability to live the Christian life and trying to understand how God can give them the victory they need. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says, So I always remind you of what you already know. And so these truths are going to be things that you've heard before, and I am going to remind you about them, but they're very important for you to understand if you're going to thrive in your relationship with, with Christ. Two substitutions, two sins, and two solutions. And I want to begin with the most straightforward of these pairs, these doubles. Two substitutions, the appearance of two substitutions in the Word of God. That God works in your life by substitution. He takes one thing out of the way and he puts something else in its place. He takes you and me out of the way and substitutes his son Jesus in our place. And there are two of them. There are two of those substitutions. Jesus dies in our place, you know this, and Jesus lives in our place. Most people are pretty familiar with the first of these substitutions, that Jesus died in our place. 
And, and the book of Romans is filled with this. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And theologians call this substitutionary atonement. It simply means that Jesus took our place on the cross. He paid the price of death that we had earned by sinning. He took the fall for us. The wages of sin is death, Romans tells us. But Jesus substituted himself in our place on our cross and paid our debt for our sins. And that, that theme, as you know, shows up through the breadth of Scripture. It's, it's the beauty of a story that is as old as the book of Genesis. And, and the Word of God is filled from cover to cover with the story of redemption. You know the story of Abraham and his promised son Isaac and how that unfolded over the course of many years in the life of Abraham as he, as he was willing to trust God until that fateful day when Abraham is climbing the mountain with his son and he has the wood and he has the knife, and they make the altar, and, and, and Isaac is laid upon the altar, and it says in Genesis twenty two thirteen that in the midst of that crucial moment, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram, sacrificed as a, as a burnt offering instead of his son, and underline the word instead of. It's key to that passage. He sacrificed the ram instead of his son. And we find those early books of the Old Testament, the story of God trying to teach his children how to maintain a right relationship with him. He's building into them an awareness, get it, that there must be an atonement for their sin. He sacrificed the ram as a burnt offering instead of his Son, check out Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21. It says that he, referring to the priest, is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sin, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. Verse 22, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. And we call that what? The scapegoat. And then as the prophet declares the word of God in the book of Isaiah, we read these words. And you can't quote them, or you, I mean, you can, you can probably quote them. But you can't do it without thinking about the sacrificial lamb and the concept of the scapegoat. And, 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 and to, to, to read these words in view of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And I want us to read them together. Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. Let's do it. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was our substitute on the cross. He took our place. But the, the Bible also teaches that not only did Jesus substitute in our, in, for our place on the cross, securing our forgiveness, but in a mysterious and beautiful way, he is our substitute within and that's why we're talking about two substitutions. He took our place on the cross, and now through the presence of the Holy Spirit, he lives through our lives. Two substitutions. Christ dies in my place, and now Christ lives in my place. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants to substitute himself into our life. Teresa of Avila was the first one to kind of pen these words, but they've been put into all kinds of, of poems and, and, and songs and verses, and it's a thought that's not new to you, but she's the first one recorded to kind of package it this way, and here's how she said it. Christ has no body now on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours, you are the eyes through which to look out Christ's compassion to the world. You are the feet with which he is about to, to, go, to go about doing good. You are the hands with which he is to bless men now. And we know that whatever Jesus does today in the world, he does through us. That we have to step aside sometimes and let him live through us. That his strength is perfect when our strength is gone. It's one of the mysteries of the way Jesus manifests himself in the world today. He does it through his body, the church, us. It's a beautiful, beautiful concept. But we have to make way for him to step into our life. There's another double that repeatedly appears in Galatians and Romans, and it has to do with sin, and it's the second thing I want you to think about this morning. There are not only two substitutions, there are two sins, and the first sin is plural, S-I-N-S. -S. As you read the first five or so chapters of Romans, you'll always see sin referred to in the plural. It references the sins that we have committed. For example, take Romans 4, verse 7, blessed are they whose transgressions, there's that plural, are forgiven, whose sins, plural, are covered. Or Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he was delivered over to death, who Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, sins, plural, and was raised to life for our justification. And when we come to Jesus, we know that our heart's cry is for forgiveness. We're sinners. We've committed sins, many of them. And the good news of the gospel is that, that in Romans 5, 8, it says that while we were still sinners, in the midst of our sinning, Christ died for us. And the Bible is pretty clear that no one can come to Jesus without first recognizing that. What do you have to recognize? That I'm a sinner. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, speaks about that, about the necessity of the recognition of the sins that we've committed, it says this, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. There is this godly sorrow for the sins that we've committed that has to be evident in the life of someone coming to Christ. We know that it's not about just repeating a phrase or praying a prayer. There's got to be the presence of godly sorrow. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise 
perish. And the word to describe this sense of godly sorrow is repentance. To recognize that we've committed sins and that there needs to be a sense of remorse. I find this a fascinating truth, really, in Scripture, that, that repentance is necessary for forgiveness. And it's fascinating to me because we see in Christ and in God and in Jesus this overwhelming love for the unrepentant, don't you? I mean, we know he, he has compassion. There's a willingness to forgive. He is full of compassion. While we were still sinners, he loved us. This is powerfully illustrated in the prayer of Jesus. He hung on the cross and said what? Father, say it, forgive them for they know not what they do. But get this. At the very same moment, in the very same instance, where we see this tangible forgiveness, where he speaks words of forgiveness to those who don't have the sense to ask for forgiveness, in that very same moment, he extends to only one thief forgiveness. Which one? The one who cried out for mercy from the Lord. And you can, you can kind of think through that issue by applying it to your own life. You may have someone in your life who's violated your trust. Someone who's wounded you or hurt you, wronged you. Perhaps they're miles away. They, they, they may be removed from your life now. Maybe they're dead. And you may very well, as an act of your own will, extend forgiveness to them, kind of as a sense of blanket uh, amnesty, really, for the hurt that they caused you. Maybe in order to kind of cleanse your own soul, and to release them from their debt. And so you should do this. To free yourself from the bondage that comes from this. You, 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 you give forgiveness to them for what they've done. But, 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 but get this. They, though you may give them forgiveness, they personally will never experience forgiveness until they walk the path of repentance. Are you with me this morning? You see, there's, there's, there's that... Forgiveness that Jesus extends to people as a whole, but in order to personally experience, there has to be this remorse for sin, this repentance. Now, this, this, is, this is really big stuff in the kingdom today. I mean, authors like Rob Bell with his book Love Wins just kind of upsets the apple cart on all this thing over, you know, at what role does does remorse and forgiveness play in sin? And then there's this hyper-grace movement that, that, that is gaining so much ground. It's like, it's like this, this undue focus on the, the inclination that God has to forgive and to love the sinner and to extend grace. And it, it, it takes, this hyper-grace movement takes that and pushes it almost one step from universal salvation. And I want to say to you, without going down that trail too far this morning, that you must never think that the graceful benevolence of God in any way winks at sin because sin needs to be forgiven. Never get the idea that God sees you sin and kind of looks the other way and says it's no big deal because the scripture affirms that sin must be forgiven and that forgiveness, there is the necessity of repentance. This is confusing for people. It's confusing in a church family, for example, or in, or in just any family. 
Someone may violate their responsibility as a family member. There's some kind of wrong done or moral failure. And people feel that if, if we're a Christian family or we're a Christian church, then in love there should be understanding and forgiveness. And, and so there should. There should be this sense of compassion, this generosity of spirit. But I want to say to you this morning, while that's true, it would be wrong for a family or a church, while, while, it's, while they should never be vindictive or judgmental or mean-spirited, it would be here at today equally wrong for that family or that church to dismiss that sin or minimize the seriousness of that sin. Even Jesus didn't do that. It's like when, when we confess to God, he, he, he says to us and, and looks, our sin, it looks at our sin and he says, yes, you are right, you did do that. And, and, and that sin is a stench in my nostrils, but because you for, for, for repent, I, I forgive you and I love you. And you see there's a difference between God's kind of magnanimous generosity and compassion towards people who are sinful without compromising the fact that people must individually be forgiven of their sin because of their willingness to repent. You see this in the, in the most famous verse in the scripture on repentance, 2 Chronicles 7, 12. If my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin. Jesus said it, or John said it in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. See, there's two, there are, there are two sins. There's, the, there's the, the sins we have committed that need forgiveness through repentance, but also we see in the book of Romans, in the second half of the book, Paul begins to explore what comes after that. In the first part, he speaks about the sins we've committed, but I want to suggest to you that if you read through the book of Romans, you'll see that he, he begins to move in the second half to dealing with, not with sins plural, but with sin singular. In fact, in the second half of the book, the word S-I-N-S, or transgressions, hardly appear at all while the word sin appears constantly. Why is that? Why would that be? It's because there are sins that I've committed that need forgiveness from God, but it is the sin within me that gives me that inclination that causes me to sin. There is a principle of sin working within me that we not only are not only a sinner because we have sinned, you know this, but you sin because you are a sinner. And so you have two needs to deal with two problems. You need forgiveness for your sins, do you get this? And you need deliverance from the power of sin. And the first forgiveness deals with my conscience. It's an issue of guilt. I'm guilty of sin, sins, and I need to be forgiven of those sins. But the second deals with my daily life. It's an issue of victory over sins or over sin. And you see, the problem is that you could receive forgiveness for your sins and experience no lasting peace in your life because you have no victory over sin. My daughter Lindsay teaches in a Muslim school in Fort McMurray, Alberta. And she, when, she, when she moved out there, she began going around the community looking for a church to plug into. And I remember her calling me one day and said, Dad, I've been going to a bunch of these churches. And she said, you know, I'm there a few weeks. And man, she said, every message that they preach about is about being forgiven for your sin. It's, it's about salvation over and over and over and over again. She said, it's like, it's, she said, I keep wondering, when are you going to go on and, and, and begin talking about what happens after you are forgiven? Watchman Nee, great 
Christian author and teacher of about 50 years ago or so. He he wrote the, the fantastic book, The Normal Christian Life. This is what he says about this issue, and these are powerful words. When God's light first shines into my heart, my one cry is for forgiveness. For I realize I've committed sins before him, but when I once have received forgiveness of sins, or I make a new discovery, namely the discovery of sin. And I realize not only that I've committed sins before God, but there's something wrong within. I discover that I have the nature of a sinner. There is an inward inclination to sin, a power within that draws to sin. And when that power breaks out, I commit sins. And I may seek and receive forgiveness, but then I sin once more. So life goes on in a vicious cycle of sinning and being forgiven and then sinning again. And he closes with these words, I appreciate the blessed fact of God's forgiveness, but I want something more than that. I want deliverance. I need forgiveness for what I've done, but I also need deliverance for what I am. That's beautiful said. So we have two substitutions and two sin problems. The two substitutions are Christ Jesus takes our place on the cross, but he substitutes himself in our life and lives through us. And then there are two sin problems, the sins we have committed and the sin that works within us. And you're familiar with the words of Romans chapter 7, and I'm not even going to read them all today, even though they're on the slide there. It's like Paul holds up this mirror in front of us and, 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 and we see in it reflected the, our own reality that we don't understand ourselves, that though we try to do what is right, that we keep on falling back into those, new, those old patterns again. Verse 23 says, there's something deep within me, my lower nature. This is the words of scripture that says, there is a war with my mind and it wins the fight and makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. In my mind, I want to be God's willing servant, but instead I find myself enslaved to sin. And you see, as humans and members of Adam's race, we have this resident nature within us. Psalm 51 says that from from Uh, that we've been a sinner from birth from the time my mother conceived me. This is what the Bible says. And you see that beautiful little baby boy and he's laying on the changing blanket. And you look down at him and you say, how could something so beautiful as this little guy be a sinner? And as you look over him, suddenly he pees in your eye and you realize that that from the get-go, from the very beginning, you begin to see the evidence of, of the, that bears up this truth that, that from birth we have this nature that gives rise to acts of sin. And God says we're a sinner. And we know that we've sinned. And then Satan, the accuser of the brethren, comes along and says, you've sinned. And, 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 and our sin needs to be forgiven. And I want to say to you this morning that any person who's going who's gonna to really become the follower of Jesus that God intends us to be has got to be able to live with the relief and the confidence that comes from not only knowing that your sins are forgiven, but you, you've, you've been given power to overcome the sin that has such domination in your life. That your inclination to habitually commit sin needs to be dealt with. And so lastly, I want to point out that Romans presents two solutions. Are you tracking with me? Two substitutions and two Sins and now two solutions. And the first solution is the blood of Christ. And the words of scripture are clear. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. How? Through the, say it, shedding of his blood. 
He's my substitute. He took my place. I don't have to pay for my sins, the sins I've committed. Jesus already did it. He took my place. All I have to do is believe and receive. Romans 5, 9 says, since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, how? By the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. It is the blood of Christ that allows us to escape the condemnation of God on us for our sin. I love what Peter said in 1 Peter 1.18, really. I think he says it the most beautifully. This is in the, uh, the Living Bible, verse 18 of chapter 1, 1 Peter. God paid a ransom to save you from the impossible road to heaven which your fathers tried to take. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver, as you very well know, but he paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. It's the first solution. It's the blood of Christ. Colossians 1.20, for Christ's death on the cross has made peace with God for all by his blood. The shedding of Christ's blood is the solution for the sins that we're all guilty of committing. But there is a second solution. And the sin that we struggle with as a part of our humanness, the sin, hear me this morning, guys, the sin that, is, that within us causes us to sin I want to suggest to you that, that it was dealt with by the cross. And this is one of the most mysterious yet wonderful aspects of living for God. And Paul explains this in the second half of the book of Romans. And, and I want to tell you that, if, that this principle, if you can grasp it, if you can experience it, if you can incorporate it into your life, it is the key to wonderful victory in your life. It's what will bring peace and freedom to you as a Christian. And I, I really believe that someone here today desperately needs to experience a new level of freedom from the bondage that they feel to sin. It may be anger. It may be hatred. It may show up as an addiction. It may, it may manifest itself in, in deceit or pornography or unforgiveness or impure thinking or jealousy or rage or envy. But, but, but Romans chapter 6 I want you to look at, at these 11 verses, and in, in my Bible, the title in this passage says, Sin's Power is Broken. And here we are in Romans 6, and we're beginning at verse 1. Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by, his glory, by the glorious power of the Father, we also now live new lives. Now look at this, verse 5. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know... Watch it. That our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. And since we died with Christ, we know that we will also live with him. We're sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he'll never die again. Death has no power over him and when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. And now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Look at verse 11. Look at it. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to Christ. He's making this comparison that just as Christ Jesus died once 
to deliver you from sin, you in the same way should consider yourself dead to sin. Verse 11 says, so look upon your old sin nature as dead and unresponsive to sin and instead be alive to God, alert to him. You see, at the beginning of your Christian life, you're concerned with, with doing, not being. But the longer you live in this spiritual body, this new, this new experience, you begin to be less troubled by what you've done, and you begin to be more troubled by what you are. And we think if we could only clean ourselves up, if we could only be a good Christian, then we'd be okay. And we keep trying to correct our actions and, and keep fixing the wrongs. And the trouble with this plan is that the problem is not on the outside of us. The problem is on the inside of us. And I want to tell you today, there are people in our churches, and there are some of you, if you don't get a handle on this truth, who, who, live, who live a lifetime never understanding this and never facing up to it. And what we're will, not willing to face up to is that not only did Christ have to die for our sins, but, but there is a death required of us too. Not only did Jesus experience crucifixion, but we have to come to the point in our life, in our spiritual life, where we experience a crucifixion too. Verse 6 says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are called, the Bible says, catch this this morning, to put to death, to crucify what, the, what, the, what the, the Bible uses these words. This isn't just Wesley, this isn't some Wesleyan terminology that's just been kind of concocted to describe this. The Bible itself uses these, <clears throat> uses these words that, 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 that there is to be a death to self, to the old man. And different, re, different translations render verse 11 of Romans 6 in different ways. Count yourselves dead to sin, Romans says. Consider yourselves as dead to sin. View yourself as dead to sin. See yourself as dead to sin. Reckon yourself as being dead to sin. I know there's a vagueness to this. It's why it's, it's elusive sometimes. There's a mystery to it. You have to see yourself in the manner in which God sees you and, and view yourself not as, as what you once were, but who you now are. One of the guys in my Men of Courage men's Bible study last year, we were, we were discussing some of this, and he shared the illustration of, of as a francophone trying to learn to speak English. And, and, and French was his native tongue. And he learned this second language. And he got to the point that he, he was very fluent in English. But he said, there would be times when I'd be in a conversation. And he said, all of a sudden, without thinking, I'd be back into my mother tongue. I, I would just revert into the old way of thinking, my native tongue. And even though I, I, I was living in the new tongue and speaking English, I would be drawn back to speaking my native language. And I want to tell you that you can get to the place where you are, you are falling and failing so often as a Christian that you think you'll never be able to live a victorious life. And what you need to realize is that it is true that you will never make it, that your native tongue is so strong that the old nature, the old sin principle in you is, has dominated you for so long that you are indeed helpless. And Paul says that you must count yourselves, 
Consider yourself, see yourself as dead to your old sinful nature, to crucify it, to mortify it, to put it to death as it were, to be dead to your native tongue and fully alive to the new you, the new creation that you are in Christ. For you are not obligated, the scripture says, to obey your old sin nature. You're not obligated to speak your native tongue, but as slaves to God, that just like Jesus was crucified on a cross, it's almost as though we too nail our old life of the slavery that we have to habitual sin, and we nail it to the cross to crucify our old inclination to seek our own will, to do our own way, to be inclined to our native tongue, to give way to the old self, that we have to be so willing to put that away, to turn from it, and to see yourself as the child of God that you really are. Paul calls us saints, and for good reason. You remember when the, when the challenger, this is a number of years ago now, but the space shuttle challenger exploded. There was a teacher on there called Krista McAuliffe, and, and, and America was was enamored with this teacher, this normal person who got in the space shuttle and was going, and, and classes, you know, it was just like Chris Hadfield recently in Canada, classes were kind of tuned into this teacher and we're gonna follow her journey. And, and all of a sudden, we, we know what happened, that, 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 that the, the space shuttle uh, at launch exploded and, and they were all killed. And one teacher who was following Krista's journey said this, when Krista stepped onto the space shuttle, we stepped on with her, but when she died, a part of us died too. And in, in some sort of the same way, you have to so strongly relate to Jesus' death on the cross that you too are crucified to your old sinful ways, to put it behind you as though you were dead to it, as though it had no power over you, for you are now alive to Christ. For you see, there are two substitutions. He took my place on the cross, and, and he wants to take my place within. And there are, two, there are two sin problems, the sins that I have committed and the sin that seeks to dominate me, and praise God, there are two solutions, the blood designed to deal with the sins you've committed and the cross where Jesus died to destroy the power of sin so we could live in victory by experiencing a death to everything we used to be. The worship team is coming. And, and I just want, as they come, I just want to say that, that when, I, when I speak these truths, I am so powerfully reminded about my own experience as being a Christian for a number of years, but just, I was a student at Houghton at the time, and I was just feeling like, man, I, I am so bummed out about my inability to try to, to do what I know I'm supposed to do and be what I'm supposed to be, and I remember so well coming to a point, it was like this, it was like this do or die moment in my life, and I, I came to an altar, and I and I said, God, you have either got to fix this issue in my life. You have either got to give me the power to be what I, what I know I ought to be or I am out of here. Like it was a, it was a real turning point in my life because I knew I had, didn't have a ghost of a chance of being who I was called to be without his power in my life. And I think there are many people in our churches and, and, may, and even, even people like you studying for, for ministry and preparing to serve God you, you know that you're forgiven of your sin, but you struggle with this, this, uh, this lack of victory in your life. 
And, and I want to say to you that you are not doomed to spend the rest of your journey with Christ constantly being beat up by your inclination to sin. I love what one of the words the Wesleyan discipline uses to describe this about sin. It says that it is, we believe it is possible for us to love doing the things that God wants us to do. You can get to that place in your life. And if you have a hunger for him and a hunger for that kind of life, and you struggle for a long time with the old you, I want to say to you that you need to, you need to say goodbye to that, to the old, and make a decisive cut with the past that you need to crucify that old way of being. And make no mistake, you crucify it today, but you're going to need to keep on crucifying it today. By the way, just before we sing, I want to say to you that, that one of the other guys in the Men of Courage Bible study, as we were discussing that native tongue thing, said, you know, I was just thinking about my mother. And she was raised French and couldn't speak a word of English when she was married to my father. But he said she entered the English world and began to learn to speak English. And he says, now, you know what? He says, my mother can't remember one word of French. And I want to say to you that you may think the ability that you, the, the possibility of you living in victory over sin in your life, you may think that that's a long way off, but you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can get to the place in your life where you are experiencing the life that God promises you to have through, the, through victory over sin through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Can we give God thanks for his provision for us? Amen.